If you would, open your Bible to Luke, Luke chapter 1. Exciting time of year, getting close to to celebrating the birth of the Lord. This week I was on the phone with one of my friends. I don't know why I'm telling you this. Uh, I was with, on the phone with one of my friends, and um, he was in my hometown. The first thing that he wanted to know was, how cold is it down there? And I said, 68. He said, I hate you. Uh, and the person that he was dealing with, the lady on the, at the counter, and this little, for those of you that don't know, I grew up in a town that's very small, and the lady behind the counter said, who in the world are you talking to? Because uh, this is the pastor in this little town. And she said, Jay, well, he actually, she, uh, I'm going to get in trouble for this, Jamie Clatworthy, because that's what they told me, uh, called me growing up. Uh, that's who I'm talking to, and her response was, oh, be careful. I don't know what that is, but he was wrapping up his Christmas plans. We come today and so thankful for the season, thankful for friends, thankful for, to be able to gather here this morning and to consider all that the Lord has done. We're going to be looking at Mary's Magnificat uh, in Luke chapter 1, so if you would stand to your feet this morning as we do honor the reading of God's holy and errant word as here sung by Mary. Starting in verse 46 of chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in the God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. For He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning so thankful for these words. Thankful for the gift that we have in the sending of Your Son for the remission of our sins. Might we come this morning and be ever so thankful for the salvation that You have worked apart from anything in us and apart from our own works. Father, might we magnify You in light of what You have inspired here in the heart of Mary. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. What a magnificent exaltation of God. As we began this morning in Psalm 113, with the encouragement from the psalmist to praise the Lord for all that He has done, here in Mary's vocabulary, we find an expression fitting 
for the season that we celebrate today an overwhelming, elaborate praise towards God. Now, it's interesting that many have come to Mary's Magnificat and they have used it as, an, as a whipping post to say, you see, a young woman apparently uh, said this, so the Bible has to be errant, because there's no way that a young girl would, would exalt God with such a theologically and, and, and poetically poised set of, of verse. Um, the accusation is that these verses, because they are so theologically informed, um, that they had to have been written at some later date. Well, what is missed in that calculation is the reality that God is the one ultimately speaking here. And really, I think what we have to see, if you'll turn in your Bible uh, as I continue to explain to, to 1 Samuel what we really have to see is that the world will always be befuddled at young people who know the Word of God and who are filled by the Spirit of God. The world, those who are lost in their trespasses and sins, don't have categories to understand the outflowing of what happens when the people of God know His Word and are filled with His Spirit, because really what is going on here in Luke chapter 1 is merely seeing the Spirit of God at work in Mary's life as she is thinking about, um, about His Word. We remember Hannah's story that she had been kind of chastised by this other woman for being barren. And so she prays to the Lord, and we'll get to that later. And then when she has her child here, she comes and she prays. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord. My heart is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind our strength. Those who, are, who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He rise, rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them set with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He sets the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail, 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Friends, the reality is what Mary is exalting God for in Luke chapter 1, she has really learned of all throughout the Scripture. There are these direct parallels between 1 Samuel chapter 2 and what we find in Luke chapter 1. And what we find is that those who would say, ah, Mary's Magnificat could have never been said by this young woman, don't understand the power of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. Mary knew her Bible. She knew her estate. But the greatest gift that she had in the moment that she uttered these words is that she knew the living God who had ransomed her and the nation of Israel through the sending of His Son. Really, what is going on here is that Mary is being carried along in the reciting of these words, as we find the encouragement from Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, for no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mary's mind here is saturated with the Word of God, and young people, let this be a lesson to you. If you're going to be used of God and if you're going to make an impact in this world, you must know the Word of God and you must be filled with the Spirit of God. And what do we see when that is the reality? What is the outworking? I'm afraid that far too often what we think of when we hear somebody who is really serious about being immersed in the Word of God is, is merely that they kind of have that exterior religious attitude and they're boring and um, they're self-absorbed and all of those things. But nothing could be further from the truth because we have here also a great case study in what is the reality of the life that is saturated with the Word of God and filled by the Spirit of God. And that is that in the economy of Mary's words here, we find one whose heart is not magnifying themselves, but magnifying the God who has saved them. Look at verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The opening words here are expressive of what she's actually experiencing, and they really are expressive of what we experience in our own relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We magnify the Lord. Our faith is exponentially uh, raised when we see the wonderment and the grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why when we are struggling with our assurance, the very first thing that we must do is not to look within because there we will find nothing but despair, but to look to Christ because when we examine the reality of what God has done in Him, we will magnify the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Is that merely sentimental? Is that something that just Hallmark could use uh, to stir our emotions? And the answer is no. Ultimately, we know that God can't be made bigger, but our heart toward Him can be enlarged. When we meditate on, our, on the character of Christ, our heart 
is warmed and our affections are raised and the Lord in our perspective is magnified because of all that He has done. When we stop and think about the wonder and the grandeur of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is that He was made sin for those who ultimately are unrighteous sinners. Our souls should say yes and amen. We should magnify the reality that He suffered in our place, bled and died, that we could be made right with a thrice holy God. Mary had just been visited by an angel. She had just had this interaction with Elizabeth. She, she is thinking through all that Gabriel has said to her and, and the experience with, with Elizabeth and, and her mind is in a place where she is thinking about how wonderful and how great the living God is. He is she, she, she is contemplating the reality that if this God of the universe who has created all things, because remember again, Mary is a young woman who knows her Bible. So she knows Genesis. She, she doesn't have the, the foolishness of evolution clouding her judgment. She is well aware of the Creator God. And at the same time, this God has made a new creation in my own womb is what she's thinking. And if that God can do these miraculous things, there is nothing beyond Him. I just wish that theologians would sometimes run their theology past Mary in her humble estate. That they would come to the soteriology they hold and, and when questioning whether or not it is God who creates faith in us or whether or not it is we who manufacture our own faith, if they would come to Mary and say, is God capable and is it right for Him to create anew in the heart of a sinner saving faith? I think Mary would say, the God who created all things and who gave the Savior through this miraculous act of the virgin birth, you think that He can't regenerate the dead soul of a human being? But then, of course, Mary is of humble estate, and far too often we do our theology in the vanity of our own minds. Here we find one who is exalting the living God. This magnification of God is, is really, again, the experience of all of us who are in Christ. Not only in our minds and in our, with our mouths, but also in our lives. Notice the parallelism here in verse 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my God and Savior. Here she is painting the reality of what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. As, as we dealt with several weeks ago, John dealing with a woman of the well says, but the hour is coming and is now here when, the true when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. She is worshiping in those realities in light of the truth of God's Word with the very depths of her soul, she is, she, is, she is worshiping in spirit and truth. As the psalmist in Psalm 108 says, My heart is steadfast, O God, and I will sing and make melody with all of my being. So we find here Mary exalting God. And friends, it's why, and I'm so thankful, listen, 
He couldn't get more excited than to hear the voices lifted this morning the way that they were in in exaltation of the living God. It's why our corporate worship matters so much. We're we're not merely to be worshipers throughout the week. We are. But to come here and to declare boldly to one another and with all of our being that our God has done great things for us. It is a peculiar person in light of Holy Scripture that would withhold their worship in the gathering of the saints for trivial reasons. Martin Luther said, At home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, should we worship privately? Absolutely. But friends, we must come and exalt God for all that He has done. And that is what Mary is doing. And there are two divisions here this morning. Six points in what Mary has said. One, Mary deals with the glory of God personally. And she does it also prophetically. So let's begin as she deals with the prophetic part of what God has done. And what we have to note is the aorist language of of Mary's Magnificent. She uses the past tense here. He has shown. He has scattered. He has brought down. He has exalted. He has filled. He has sent. He has helped. But it is in the prophetic past tense, which is all throughout Scripture, if you know your Bible well, in the aorist tense. She's, what, what she's doing to simplify, I won't give you a Greek lesson this morning because we've got a lot of uh, material to cover, not much time. What she's doing is she's, she's being faithful to interpret the reality of God by looking backward and then trusting Him with the future. She's looking through the pages of Scripture as she exalts God, but then she is looking forward to what He has promised that He will do. And the first thing that she prophetically deals with in these veins of the historical reality of Israel and the prophetic coming of Christ is she looks at the moral reversal in verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. As Mary is is saying that, Mary being full of the Spirit and full of the Word, she knows the story of Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. She knows the reality of Mordecai and that evil Haman. She knows the reality of Absalom. She is enlightened in the truth of the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar, for those of you that don't know the, the story, that, that Nebuchadnezzar, this, this self-absorbed individual who is king and who comes to the uh, royal palace of Babylon and, and ultimately he looks out and he said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of your majesty. There is this arrogance that, that Nebuchadnezzar has and ultimately we find in the narrative that he is humbled, that he is brought low, that he has made nothing in the sight of his people. He actually goes out for a long period of time I think it's seven years. And, and he is like an animal in the wilderness. But then coming back to his senses, 
He says in Daniel chapter 4, For His dominion is everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He has done according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand. Or who can say to Him, What have you done? In the mind of Mary as she proclaims here that He has shown the strength of His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. She remembers Pharaoh. She remembers Haman and Absalom and Nebuchadnezzar. And she knows the conclusion here for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, verse 37. And those who walk in pride, to those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. She knows the character of God is to be one who takes those who are prideful and He humbles them for His own glory. Mary's words here are words of prophecy about the the reversal that Christ brings into the world by by exclaiming the reality that we must be humbled ourselves and and looking at the reality of Christ as the one who typifies all of this in the fact that he was in glory and yet he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant we see all throughout the the new testament the reality that man time and time again will stiffen his neck and will in his own mind claim to be wise and in pride and vanity he will go about his own devices and God will have to humble him. Herod Agrippa stood in his royal robes before an admiring audience and, and he's enjoying their praise and ultimately Luke tells us that, that this man is humbled immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to the Lord and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's humbling. The Lord does deal with those who are arrogant in positions of authority. Friends, the reality is that we've walked through a year of seeing people ravaged in our own world by war and the pride and vanity of a few. And as we pray for parts of the world like the Ukraine, we have to be comforted by the reality knowing that God in His due course will humble those who exalt themselves. In fact, Matthew chapter 23, we find whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In James chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible records God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The reality is our God is one who will continually humble those who are prideful in their own eyes. And and, and friends, here's where we need to, to, to really settle with this. We need to ask ourselves, have I been humbled? Have I come to a point where I've realized the insanity of my own pride before the living God? And have I come to know that it is only through the saving work of Christ that I have a relationship with the Lord? 
Have we come to a point in our life, not only that we believe that the Bible is true, but that we, in an expression of faith, have come to know that we are prideful people saved only by the grace of Almighty God? If that's not true, if you can only say, I believe in Jesus, but I believe I had to get myself there, can I encourage you that the God that Mary knew that spent generations humbling men on the final day of judgment is going to do the very same thing and He will humble every person who has not come through the blood of Christ alone by grace alone. It is only by the salvific work of God that we can ever hope to know or to exalt Him. Otherwise, we will be humbled. We also see in verse 52 a a social reversal. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and He has exalted those of humble estate. Again, the historical, and and for the sake of time, I'm not going to dive deep into all of these, but we remember Belshazzar and the feast and, and, and... the uh, arrogance that this leader displayed. Uh, His enemies are encamped outside of the city, but in his own mind, the gates of Babylon are strong enough. And so he even, uh, so he kind of just ignores the reality of the the present uh, danger. And he goes on partying. He ends up having uh, the chalice Brought and he, in a blasphemous act, what was supposed to be used for the worship of God is used uh, in debauchery and this orgy filled party that he's having. And then all of a sudden, if you remember the story right, there's this writing on the wall that says, Your kingdom, in all of his arrogance, is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And the Bible says, that the king's color changed. He's sitting there, he's partying, he thinks life is going on fine. And friends, there may be some of you here this morning who you're living your life for you. And whether that's in debauchery or religious um, self-righteousness, you think you can go on living your life the way that you want to, building your own kingdom, trusting in your own devices. But friends, I promise you, there will be a day when you will stand before the Lord and He will deal with you. And He will, outside of Christ, say, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. The Bible records as, as the king here is parting it up and living it up and living life for his own devices and glory, all of a sudden as these words are written on the wall declaring that He has been judged and the kingdom will be given over, the Bible says, depending on your translation, the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The King James, I think, gives it more poetically. The joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote against one another. I had a Bible professor in college that said, we don't need to go further than just to know that this is a messy, stinky king. This is a king who thinks in the vanity of his own mind that he is okay because he finds himself in an exalted position. I think there's humor in the Bible, isn't there? God takes men who are so repugnant to His glory and He humbles them even in these ways. What we find then later is that Daniel was appointed as the ruler, as the third ruler rather in Daniel chapter 5, verse 29, 
uh, of the kingdom. And so, again, Mary had to have had examples like this in her mind and the reality that God, He humbles those who are exalted and He exalts those who are humbled. And we see this in Jesus Himself who again made Himself willingly uh, took on human flesh as we find in, in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is glory to the God, to God the Father. The, the Gospel, in its, all of its full-orbed implications, lifts up the humble and casts down the proud. We are told that the meek are those who will inherit the earth in Matthew chapter 25. We are again advised the day of judgment is coming. May not be today, but it will come. And God will bring those who are prideful and in in social positions of strength. He will bring them low and He will exalt those who live in meekness and in fear before Him. And that's why Peter warns us solemnly, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. So we, we see the reality here of a social Reversal. We also see a material spiritual reversal in, in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And what we read this morning, uh, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter chapter 1. I, I think this is a, a fantastic, and as Mary, there's so many parallels to what Hannah has written there. I, I, I have to believe that in some sense she was thinking about the, the reality of the context here, uh, knowing that Hannah has been, she's been chastised by this other woman for having been barren. And what does she do with that difficulty? What does she do with that material need of wanting a child? And friends, if we just listen... There's so many realities throughout the Old Testament that are flipped in our own culture. In our culture, we look at children as though they were the plague. But in this culture, with right, bright eyes, they understood that children are an inheritance of the Lord. A gift from Almighty God. And a barren woman was looked down upon in the economy of this culture. And so what does she do as she, she desires and she, she bitterly weeps over the reality of wanting a child? And look at verse 11 of chapter 1. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forgive your servant, but will give uh, to your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now look forward to verse 19. Actually, verse 18. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, 
But listen to this phrase, and the Lord remembered her. He took this woman who was barren, who had no children, who had no hope of of that being a reality in her life and and all of the social stigma that would come from it. And, and, And as she prays and begs the Lord, the Lord gives her materially in, in a child what she desires. Friends, the reality is all throughout the Gospel, what we find is those who are in serious, physical, spiritual need, material need, it, it is a good place to, to be lacking. One of the gifts of fasting is that as you, as you refuse food into your body, you are building into your body a, a, a reminder that as your, as your body craves and hungers physically for food, that you have a greater spiritual need. And it will be filled in Christ. We, we see all throughout the Old Testament these encouragements that if we are in need materially, it pushes us to be filled spiritually. Psalm 63, verse 11, O God, You are my God. Eternally I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in the de- dry and weary land where there is no water. Or Psalm 81, verse 10, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it, says God. Or Psalm 119, verse 81, My soul longs for your salvation. What we find all throughout the Old Testament is that spiritual hunger is a prescription for spiritual health. And so Mary's eye here being on history it points her in the direction of the reality that she needs to hunger for those or for for the Lord. Think about um, the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter three. Uh, the, the individuals who come and they think that they're, they're self-sufficient. Friends, the church today is so full of those who don't spiritually hunger, but rather they are satisfied with very little. I don't want to go too far into this, but the reality that people can come into a worship service and instead of having their minds challenged by the Word of God, And instead of having their hearts convicted by the Spirit of God according to the law of God, they come in and they merely just feed on emotional drivel from a worship pastor who wants to put on a show and entertain people. We exchange the worship of God for the entertainment of people and the people are satisfied with that. The people give copious amounts of money so that we can go on entertaining And then those who are in leadership of ministry feel satisfied. That's so spiritually dangerous. Rather, we should be in a place where we hunger and thirst not after the things of this world religiously, but after the person and the work of the triune God. And that's what the... What is what the church is being told? The church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you 
may see. Friends, it's a good thing to be in a place where you have spiritual appetite and you hunger not merely that your affections would be stirred emotionally, but that your mind might be brought and your heart and all of your affections might be brought to the part, point where Mary is this morning in the Magnificat to magnify the living God. To see with your spiritual eyes the reality that He has done wonderful things. And that is where we find... Um, Simeon and Anna and those of you that, that, that have been here for several years know that this is my favorite um, passage of, of Scripture. When oh, It's called the Nunc Dimittis, which in Latin literally translates, I'm ready to depart in peace. And in verse 27, if you're in Luke chapter 1, turn to chapter 2, verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have, appoint, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thought, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." The reality is Mary has prayed her Magnificent here. She knows the Old Testament. And so does Simeon. And both of them, they are not satisfied with the light, tepid worship of their own day. They hunger and they thirst for an experience with the living God. And so that brings us to the second part of this Magnificent. And that is the personal application that Mary leans in with. I just want you to see the prophetic and the historical reality of, of Mary and the time she lives, that she knows the Old Testament history in which she lives, and she knows the prophetic promises that the Old Testament prescribes in the Messiah. And she's looking at both realities. And in this moment in Luke chapter 1, she applies them in her own life. And look in verse 48, the very first thing that she says. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Mary says, where he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And this isn't her humble estate like Hannah of childlessness. This is on the humble estate of, in my view, of the entire nation of Israel that they long for and they need the Messiah to come. And here, she acknowledges the reality that her need is for God to deliver her alone. Humble estate acknowledges that neither she nor anyone in the kingdom, anyone in Israel, could bring about the deliverance that was needed. Friends, that's the narrative of all of the Old Testament. God bringing 
Abraham and David and every other uh, Old Testament figure, Samuel and, 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 and Saul and every other individual that is in the line of, of Christ in one form or another and proving humanity apart from grace to be absolutely inadequate to save themselves. When we come again to this idea of whether or not our salvation is completely and sheerly by grace alone and the audacity of some to say, well, you're just getting into a theological argument that doesn't matter. Oh, contrary. Because before you even get to the New Testament, the entire Old Testament has proven there is no one who saves themselves. Not one time. The, the, most, the, the hero... David, who is the one that we all grow up going, I want to, as little boys, I want to be like him. I want to slay giants with a slingshot, just five stones. And if we really understand that story, do you know why there are five stones? If you've missed that, you've missed the entire point of the text. If you read through the narrative again, I think, is it, is it 2 Samuel chapter 17? If you read through that narrative again, and you will find that Goliath, and in, in different uh, trajectories, is explained to have had the, the armor and the helmet and the big spear and everything that man can do to gain the victory. And you know what God does? He takes a child, gives him five stones, not to display that this kid can win the battle. Nobody, since the narrative of David and those of us that believe that it's actual historical fact that that happened, none of us, I have four sons, and if a battle comes into our backyard tomorrow, I'm not sending them out with five stones to defeat the enemy. You know why? Because that victory was not about what children could do. It's about what God can do. Friends, our salvation is of the Lord alone. We are of humble estate. And I promise you, maybe that's what theologians should do. They should change the, the, the narrative of radical depravity to just of humble estate. Because that's what it means. That in the sight of a holy God, we cannot save ourselves. It is only by the gift of Almighty God. And here, Mary is magnifying that God has come to her and said that He is going to to bring the Savior through this virgin birth. Mary acknowledges her own humble estate and the humble estate of all humanity. She also acknowledges in verse 48 her blessedness. She celebrates the reality that she was of humble estate and that in God's kindness, that she would be an individual who would for generations be called blessed. Mary is generally at the top of the list of baby names in the Western world. And it's not just because it's easy to spell. It's because this is a woman who has been honored throughout our history because, not because of what she's done, and she's not, contrary to Roman Catholic teaching, a co-redeemic, that you can't get that teaching through her magnificent because she's of humble estate. She's not a redeemer. She is merely the vessel that God used in His providence. But she is blessed. 
Think about it. Friends, far too often we come to these words and we think of them in religious context. Think of them in light of the reality of Simeon having told her at the temple that day that he, this child is for the, the, the rise and the fall of many in Israel and a sword is going to pierce through your soul and she's standing there at the cross and she's looking at her son uh, upon the cross being uh, executed and she knows for her sin and for our sin And she sees there in the face of our Savior in some sense her own likeness. Because God in His kindness has used her to bear the second member of the Trinity and our Redeemer. And so she in her heart is reminded yet again that she is blessed to be there in that moment and to know and experience the salvation of the living God. And friends, here's here's what I would just say. When we come to this verse... Uh, verse 48, and it says that Mary is blessed. Don't walk away thinking that somehow you've missed out on the blessing because the blessing isn't in Mary, it's in Christ. And if we understand fully the, the reality that we at one time were alienated from the righteousness of God and His holiness and Christ had to come and live perfectly in our place and die on the cross as a propitiation for our sins, then when we know that we've come to a repentant relationship with a living God, we can rejoice with Mary that we also are blessed because we are united with Christ. Because as Mary looked there upon the cross and she saw the likeness of her own flesh in the face of Jesus, now spiritually in our lives, because of the regenerating power of the Spirit of Almighty God, we see His likeness in our lives as well. That's what we learn of in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We will have all of His image imprinted on our soul for all of eternity. Friends, we will be blessed not only generations here on earth, we are blessed eternally because we are in Christ. The blessing is knowing the One who redeems from sin and Satan, not according to our goodness, not according to our own ability, but according to His power and for His glory alone, which is the point of this entire passage. Verses 49 and 50, she exalts in the divine nature of God and His mercy, excuse me, for He is mighty who has done great things for me and holy is His name and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Here Mary exalts the power and the holiness and the mercy of Almighty God. She is looking to the One who ultimately has brought about the redemption of all mankind not through any religious devices of man, but by His divine power alone. Friends, I have a... I have a, a family member who regrettably at times will, around Christmas I can remember, will, will say, what difference does it make if, if, if Jesus was born a virgin or not? As long as we have a good moral example. That is death. 
Because that leads us to follow a moral example which is alive and well and what most, I think, nominal Christian churches are teaching latently in America today. The joy of the Gospel is that we don't have merely a moral example. Jesus is not less than that. But He's so much more. Because the reality is, Christ came into the world through the power of the Spirit of God alone for the salvation of those who He would be given by the Father. We are saved, friends, not by our morality, our religion, our professions, and I can go on and on. We are saved by the power of God alone. We are saved by a God who is holy. There's an entire three weeks worth of attributes of God wrapped up in these uh, two verses here. Don't worry, we're not going to be there next week. But friends, the reality is, Mary exalts not in herself, not in her... I had a professor, not a professor, actually he's a man who used to come preach here all the time. And he, around Christmas time, uh, every once in a while would come to Baptist Bible College and he would preach a sermon on Mary. And he would say, do you know what kind of girl it would take for God to look down and say, I'm going to use her? She must have been phenomenal. I, I do think that there are redeeming qualities of Mary. But Mary is not... The, the mother of God because of Mary. Mary is found in this narrative exalting God because of the mercy and grace of God alone, which is the entire point of the Magnificat, that He is the one who is powerful. He is the one who is holy. He is the one full of mercy. The only thing that we bring to the table is our wretchedness and our sin. Here, we find the joy of knowing His eternal mercy. Look at verses 54 and 55. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. What Mary is saying there Isn't this fantastic? The Savior has been promised and now He has conceived and He will come into the world and He will accomplish all that God has said about throughout all of the Old Testament. He will accomplish all of those things for His own glory. He is faithful to His Word. He has set Himself, He has introduced Himself to Moses as one who is full of mercy. And He will complete those merciful acts all throughout history in redeeming a people for His own heritage. For His own namesake. What Mary is is saying here in the Magnificat is really, look, all of what God has promised has come to pass in Christ and in Christ alone. Friends, stop looking to other places in the world to bring fulfillment in your life. Stop looking to your spouse to be perfect and to give you... I I can't stand how much Christian marriage counseling kind of ends this way. Well, you, you have love tanks and you just need to fill each other's love tanks and speak each other's love languages. And then once you do all of that, then you'll be satisfied in your marriage. I love my wife and she loves me more than anybody on the face of the planet could ever hope to love me. As much of a miserable wretch as I am. But I can't find fulfillment in Sarah. And I only find that in Jesus. 
I can't find fulfillment in my work. I can only find that in the perfect works of Christ. I can't find righteousness in my own religion. The only place to find lasting righteousness is in the person of Christ. It is only in Him that we find yes and amen. The rest of us are kind of left with the oh. It is Christ who should be exalted. It is He who has fulfilled all things. Listen. Friends, it's difficult to hear brothers and sisters read the law of God to each other and kind of argue with one another in a way. There's an entire theological train that has kind of gotten underway again in the church in our day that, that, that kind of, well, if we can just reinstitute the, the civil law, boy, our country's going to flourish. What? The, the law didn't work for Israel under a theocracy. And you think if you're going to take the Old Testament and reinstitute it, we're going to be better? No, because ultimately the law points us where? Not to better laws here, but to Christ, the One who has fulfilled all of the law in our place. That's why Mary is exalting here because all of the Levitical system and everything in Deuteronomy, all of the narratives, all of the Old, uh, Old Testament minor prophets, everything finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Don't settle for a hermeneutic that's lower than that. Don't settle for something that aims you past Christ. Know that all of, your, of the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in Him and mercy and grace and joy and true worship is found in Him alone. It all comes to Him, which is in fact, turn to chapter 4, what we find Him saying. If you don't want to take my words for it, just listen to Jesus. Chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. Now, let's start at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Boy, if that is a verse that could be emboldened, emblazoned above our doorpost here. And the eyes of all of the congregation were fixed on him. Let that be so here. And what he says is they're all looking at him. And he began to say to them, Today, the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is, in Christ, every prophecy is yes and amen. Friends, might we exalt Him knowing 
that everything in all of our lives that we struggle with, our sin, our suffering, it all finds its yes and amen in Jesus. As the hymn writer wrote, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in you tonight. And I think that we can boldly say that every ounce of Scripture finds its yes and amen in that manger as well. Might we worship Him in spirit and in truth this holiday season, not looking to our own morality, not looking to our own goodness, not looking for gifts that will pass away, but rejoicing in the One who has given us mercy eternally. Do you pray with me? Father God, we come in light of Mary's exaltation and just as a shadow, we come and we exalt You, knowing that You are the One who humbles the the proud and You are the One who exalts the lowly. So, Father, humble us now. Help us to worship not according to the dictates of men, but according to Your wonderful works. Father, we're so thankful to know that You are the One who keeps Your Word because in the economy of Your Word, every word You speak is an action. It's something that is done, finished, settled. And so our salvation is completed not in our own work, but in Christ and in Christ alone. So Father, would You stir in our hearts afresh and anew a desire to worship You, not according to our works, but according to the spiritual blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, stand and we'll sing, O God, our help in ages past.